Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of World of Intelligence at Jane's. As usual, Harry Kemsley, your host, and my co-conspirator, Sean, Sean Corbett. How are you, Sean? Hi, Harry. Good, thanks. Looking forward to this one. So, Sean, you and I have spoken recently a great deal about the power and use of open source intelligence from open source information and its uses in the public sector around government agencies, for example. What we haven't done, however, is speak about how open source information and intelligence that can be derived from it can be used by the commercial sector. So we in Jane's globally have about 25% of our customers globally who are in that sector. So it seemed to me that probably about overdue, we started talking about the commercial sector as well. So to that end, we've asked a colleague from a partner organization, LifeRaft, Neil Spencer to join us. Hello, Neil. Hello, gentlemen. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. So Neil is the Director of Strategy and Partnerships for LifeRaft. He has more than 20 years of security experience. And during that time, he's advised both corporate and government sectors. So ideal for this conversation with his corporate background. Uh, his research focuses on the security and intelligence markets to understand how new technologies, trends, and online data sources impact assets and operations. For those that don't know LifeRaft, it's a technology company that steps in to bridge the gap between digital data discovery and traditional physical security, providing an evolving threat intelligence and investigations platform to the corporate security market, which help companies better prepare for and respond to evolving security threats. Neil, again, thank you for joining. Pleasure. Let's start then with a very brief discussion about what we mean, the three of us, about open source information and the intelligence we can derive from it. So, Sean, I'm going to come to you first in terms of our understanding of it. Neil, you just confirm that you agree, disagree, or add to that as you see fit, and we'll pick up the pieces from there. Sure, Sean, how do we generally describe what open source means? So four components predominantly for me. The first thing is uh, legally accessible. You know, we don't do stuff that is not legal, of course. Second is is this publicly or commercially available. Doesn't matter if you have to pay for it, but it's got to be able to be available by anybody there. And then this sort of final thing is that it needs to be able to be applied to a particular problem set or theme. Very good. Neil, your, your, your views on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think uh, I align very strongly with that and the difference fundamentally between, you know, OSINTH uh, with the F and PAI, the fact that the OSINTH and PAI drives the OSINTH. So, you know, to get something tangible out of it, you need to overlay a layer of context there. So, yeah, absolutely. Very much aligned. All right. Now, during the course of the conversation, Neil, I think we'll, we'll zero down into the social media world, but I want to be clear as we start this, we're keeping the aperture wide. We're looking at the range of open source information that's available. And I want to start off by then just looking at how does the open source information and the intelligence we can derive from it, how does that impact the commercial sector? Let's look at it over, over recent times. I don't want to put too stringent a time band on there, but in the recent two or three years, What's been the impact of open source information and intelligence on the commercial sector in your experience? Yeah, I, I think, Harry, in, in my experience, and especially you know, us at LifeRaft, I think our corporate customers, in particular, and I'm sure it's not too dissimilar in the government space either, have seen just the breadth and scope of online sources, uh, especially in the, in the social media world, increase mm. significantly. You know, if you go back 
uh, let's go back 24 months ago, you know, you, you well, it's a little bit further, you know, you, you had the big four, you had the Twitters, the Facebooks, the YouTubes, the Instagrams of the world. And now we are almost not quite daily anymore. There was a period sort of a couple of years ago where it was almost daily. You had new platforms coming online, but monthly almost we start to see these new sources pop up. And it's, I, I think from a corporate security standpoint beyond, it's understanding you know, how people are using those particular sources, what you can potentially get from them, what opportunities are there to, to be learned, uh, and also the, the risks and the pitfalls of, of exploring yeah. some of those. Sources. Yeah, well, so we'll, we'll sort of come on to the risks uh, in a bit later. So let's bookmark that one for later for sure. Absolutely. But in terms of the impact that it's had, then what with all these new platforms coming in, what are the sort of things that the commercial sector are seeing as value out of these? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if you're looking at uh, the threat landscape, so you're starting to understand, <laughs> seeing some some uh, large voices come out of those areas. So whereas potentially in some of the poor social media platforms, people may not have been keen to, to share some of their views. Uh, people uh, maybe historically have been deplatformed from some of those those uh, those platforms as a result of, of sharing views. So those particular newer platforms, those emerging platforms, have created a safe space for some of those conversations. That means that the corporate security teams can start to to pick up on those signals. So having those those sort of horizon scanning approaches to uh, seeing what's coming down the line, seeing what's there, seeing what they can get ahead of, because you, know, you, you need to be able to preempt any potential threats coming your way. And that can be a direct threat or in the risk space. So it might be things like geopolitical risk that might be impacting your business operations down the road. Uh, it might be something as simple as weather. So, you know, you, you folks are sitting in the UK sweltering at the moment and the richness of sources that are out there now. And, you know, if we look at some of those newer sources and not just what we'd call the alternate social medias, but, but the emerging uh, social media, and even in the form of something like TikTok. So TikTok has really only been around uh, in, in the grand scheme of things since 2016. So, you know, relatively new on the scene, a billion people out there are putting that uh, are putting content out into, into TikTok. So to be able to identify content, uh, see you know all, all of those or, or something like TikTok, something like Telegram has a lot of images, a lot of videos associated with it. Uh, TikTok is a very video centric platform. You know that content is there to be understood to give context to what's going on and to give insight to those those ocean analysts that, that, that need it. So I think to circle back, you know, it is the, the, the breadth, the impact of those platforms, some of the, the opportunities there are just identifying some of those nuggets that are out there because there is such a breadth and because now there's the, in some of those forums, people are brave enough to share maybe thoughts that perhaps historically they wouldn't have done. And then in a day-to-day -day life, there are people out there, there is enough of a landscape, there is enough of a footprint to be sharing insights just as part of their day-to-day -day life. And all of that is publicly available for people to go and look at, use and understand what's going on as, as a crowdsourced intelligence tool at that stage. Um, sure, I'm going to come to you in just a second. I just want to come back on a point that I think I heard Neil say a second ago, but when I come back to you, Nick, um, Sean, I'm looking for you to just to try and give me some comparison from what we've heard in our previous discussions about what is going on in the public sector space and how they're finding use. I certainly uh, recognise the discussions about context and indicates and warnings that Neil mentioned, but I'll come back to that in just a second, Sean, if I may. 
But Neil, before I do that, there's just one thing you said uh, towards the beginning of your answer there about a reluctance to engage. I think you said that some individuals have been put off platforms or taken off platforms because something they said. Are you saying that in the corporate world there is a real reluctance to engage with social media because they don't want to be seen to be saying something that's perhaps incorrect or viewed as incorrect, or is it they just are told not to? No, I, I think um, my, my point there is fundamentally that essentially groups of a, of a certain uh, thought process or individuals of a certain thought process may be, you know, as anonymous as some of those mainstream platforms are, historically, maybe the, the level of visibility that they had, they were not willing to share some of their, their thoughts oh, into, those, into those platforms. Now that some of those offshoots have, have been created, and like-minded people tend to congregate towards those particular channels and those particular sources, it's those it's the echo chamber effect. Echo chamber, yeah. yeah. Everybody else there is sharing those same thoughts, so all of a sudden, somebody who right. might have had underlying thoughts uh, and, and concerns and theories now has that either you know that that is uh, amplified or then starts to come forward as uh, as as somebody who is happier to share those underlying underlying thoughts and theories and then so presumably it becomes potentially a richer source because they're being more open and more more direct in that echo chamber they've created for themselves absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. So, Sean, let's talk about that in the public sector. Your view in terms of the comparator there, that sounds pretty similar, doesn't it, with indicators and warnings and the context piece that Neil mentioned? Yeah, definitely. I think the first thing I should say is this is a really important uh, subject to to discuss because, you know, much as we spend a huge amount of effort on the, the government space and the, and, the, and the, you know, public sector, open source intelligence is incredibly valuable for the commercial sector. But in my view, certainly in my experiences working with other companies, very rarely used to to be the force multiplier that it is in the the defence sector. So, for example, you and I would be so used to and probably hate the risk matrices we used to look at, but we used to pore over those to the nth degree, probably too much. Now, I'm not saying that we always got it right in terms of you do your risk matrix, you shut it, and then you move on to something else, but it actually means something. So if you sort of apply that to the commercial sector, it is still trying to optimise what you're doing and reduce your threat. And there's a difference between risk and threat, obviously. Yep, you know, yep. the, the risk is something that the, the owner of the process makes a judgment of against a threat that they're given. And, and so it's actually a very similar thing. You know, if you look at the scope right now that the commercial uh, sector could be using for, it's everything from, I absolutely get threats, and that could be cyber threats, it could be supply chain threats, it could be competitive threats. And, you know, the competitive analysis is, is, is pretty poor actually out there in terms of the commercial sector. Maybe they protect their information better. I don't know, Neil, Neil I'm sure will tell us in a moment. So the opportunities and the threats are as important. But, but getting down to specifically, you know, what can uh, affect my bottom line, which is what it's all about. Yeah. So, you know, it might be cyber threats, but it might be physical threats. But it might also be, is there somebody else in the market that does it better? So that competitive analysis piece, which is exactly what we do within the, within the uh, you know, defence sector, but we're just sure. in a different way. Yeah, and I, I think actually what you just picked up on there, Sean, is quite interesting. The, the idea of the traditional threat to an organisation might well be something to do with physical threats to their infrastructure, for example. Um, I think we also talk quite frequently these days about cyber threats. They've become increasingly the new traditional, haven't they? Um, but what about the non-traditional threats? Do, do companies perceive traditional and non-traditional threats, Neil, in your experience, in terms of things they've got to worry about? Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think traditional or non-traditional, uh, and more so almost that, that convergence of 
things like physical and cybersecurity. So historically, you know, there is a clear demarcation between those two groups. So these days, anything that appears in the cyber domain can very rapidly manifest itself as a physical threat. So, you know, you have threat actors out there that are doxing executives, for example, doxing high profile uh, individuals within uh, within organization, or actually in our experience, doxing, so if you're looking at uh, media entities, so so their talent, news reporters, actors, uh, etc. Uh, and, you know, all of that, so the soon or, or as soon as somebody has their, their name, address, phone number, etc. in the public domain, because all of this is being released into the public sphere, that very quickly can manifest itself into a physical threat. So the yeah. sooner that a corporate security team can get ahead of that threat, absolutely the better. Uh, and that is the difference, you know, between uh, and sort of, I, I think, to, to your point, Sean, you know, ultimately, be it in the government space or in the in the in the commercial space in the, in the private sector space, it comes back to, uh, you know, uh, business continuity uh, in, in, in inverted commas. Um, how do you make sure that your business can continue to run as effectively and as efficiently as possible? Yeah. Just on that one and uh, talk yeah. about the non-traditional threat. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. There's one of the major multinational corporations that I, I sort of talk to sometimes. They've got one individual that just looks at their insider threat. Yeah. I was thinking, what, what on earth do you mean by that? But that's everything from industrial espionage to theft to disgruntled interview individuals just want to sabotage the company. And that's, that's a person's full time job. So clearly there's something in that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's the, uh, the unfortunate mistake that people make you know they it's not just the malicious it can be just the oops sorry i didn't mean to do that moment yeah absolutely to, to the words out of my mouth harry and uh, and you know especially in the world of social media people can be be happily you know sitting at work uh maybe very proud of what they're they're doing for a living take a snapshot of something very sensitive in the background and all of a sudden that is that is out there in, in the ether for all and sundry to see so yeah how do you how do you understand that and how to get ahead of that it's uh yeah that that's really what we're trying to solve for people yeah so let's do, let's just step into the social media we've mentioned it several times in this conversation already social media often confused to mean open source information or intelligence. No, yeah. we mean that as a part of the bigger picture. What are the big new changes, the new platforms that have happened in this space, um, or indeed the alternate platforms that perhaps we haven't heard about very much? What's really starting to Im impact the social media intelligence environment that might well become opportunities or threats for an open source intelligence analyst? Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of we'll, we'll drill down into a, into a couple of them as, as part of this discussion. But I think to echo our, our, our discussions earlier, if we go back to especially sort of the, the 2019 presidential election in the US, I, I think that was a clear tipping point for the resurgence of some of these alternate and emerging social platforms. You know, people were getting deplatformed, groups were getting deplatformed by some of the major social media providers out there. And that's realistically because they started to enforce policies that have been in place for a long time. And all of a sudden you started to have, actually in many instances, some of these platforms had been around for a while. So the likes of Gab uh, had been around for years, but you know, it's, 
it suddenly came to prominence again because people not abiding by the terms uh, of service that, that are laid out by some of those mainstream social media providers were being deplatformed and, and therefore they needed somewhere, those, those groups, those individuals needed somewhere to share their thoughts and, and have conversations. Again, with, with, with like-minded individuals. So all of a sudden these safe spaces were created. Gab, if we, if we touch on that one, seems to have been the largest winners over the past two years of the alternate social media space. So um, we did a little bit of research a few months ago sort of um, to, to look into this. We were actually asking ourselves the question because we assumed that if you look at trends coming up over the past two years, you would see some of these have uh, some of these merging channels, merging platforms as having a massive trajectory. Because if you go back to, uh, again, the 2019 sort of time frame, things like Parler, that was the number one downloaded app on, on the Google and Apple store. And I'll touch on that in a moment. But if we circle back into, into Gab, so over the, the past two years, so they have had a 305% increase on monthly visits. So realistically, that is a shift for away from those mainstream platforms into some of those those alternative uh, media platforms. And that's in that in that two year period. And I can see that starting to all that trend continuing uh, onwards. And I think they have probably been the, the largest I say, winner out of this alternate media uh, emergence. But let's remind ourselves about Gab. So you know, Gab is is where the Pittsburgh synagogue shooter posted. Uh, his manifesto before undertaking that particular attack. So it is a place that has a history of being associated with violence and certainly attracts some leaning of thought process within that group. And I think that comes back to our earlier discussion about having a safe space that people can can discuss and share those feelings with essentially like-minded individuals. So are they safe spaces because they're just less governed by the organisations that run them, or is there some other aspect that makes them, quote, safe spaces for the one people? Yeah, f fundamentally, especially the, the the likes of Gab and, and we'll talk sort of uh, referencing Chan boards. They are they are <laughs> to, to almost quote Gab. They are democratizing social media in, in in their words. So they are not controlling that space. They are not putting any moderation, self or otherwise, across their their platforms. As a result of that, the sort of content or not any strong moderation. So they have a strong freedom of speech mantra, which everybody absolutely should be entitled to freedom of speech. But when it transgresses into acts of violence and hate speech, that's when there needs to be a line drawn fundamentally. But at the same time, when we look at the risks and opportunities, because it is self-moderating, again, that, that's you know where some of these conversations are, are, are taking place, and that's where yeah. you can pick up those early threat indicators. Of, of yeah, the indic indicators and warnings piece again. It, Sean, it also occurred to me that that sounds a little bit like the ungoverned spaces, the physical ungoverned spaces of the world that uh, you know we see national threats coming from traditional and some non-traditional threats as well. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Yeah, it, 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 it absolutely does. Yeah, actually, I mean, what, what's fascinating about the, the social media sp space is the speed with which things develop. I mean, you just need to have kids to know that, you know, one week you're just you're sort of downloading the, the, the app that they've told you about and they're on to the next thing. Now, I would imagine that that, uh, well, I know that it, it provides both opportunities and threats because the less regulation there is, the more you've got a chance to to interrogate, if you like, and, and you know, get into some of the metrics. The challenge becomes, uh, you know, then how much, how you have to adapt and how quickly to the tools and methods that are used. 
But of course, even even the sort of big ones like the Facebooks of this world or the rest of it, you can tell them old, you know, they change their privacy details, and they change their accessibility details and all sorts. So what when when you could start to, you know, look at the data in there, sometimes it will disappear or you have to look at it in a different way. So I imagine this is really is a to use the defense part, they sort of act, react, you know, into getting inside the EDA loop. Mm. Yeah, that would be uh, fascinating to try and get inside a noodle loop that's moving at light speed with 305% growth of uh, population. <laughs> that would be an interesting one to try and get inside the loop of that. Neil, let's move on because I want to get to a point where by the end of this, we've got some tangible takeaways for a listener who perhaps works in a commercial environment and maybe hasn't considered the open source environment, and maybe hasn't really considered the power of the social media environment as a source of guidance or threats and warnings which I think we're talking about here, they could be doing. So what are the the sort of methods and tools that are becoming available or that are available that would help a, a business, a commercial organization, optimize its use of social media, for example, or indeed wider uh, open source information? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there are, there, there are commercial providers out there. We are one of uh, a few, sure. let's, let's be honest, that are tasked with realistically making this process a lot more efficient. So uh, us and, and other people in, in the space, we are ensuring that the laborious process of going to each and every individual site um, you know, manually can be automated in some way, shape or form. It's never quite a silver bullet. And I think that's to be noted. And any sort of commercial provider that's, that's not acknowledging that is arguably um, not being honest with themselves. But, you know, it's a good way of, uh, of understanding as best you can what is out there and, and providing potential leaping off points to go and investigate further, potentially in platform if, uh, if they need to. If you take a step back from sort of commercial, then, you know, every Every good OSINT analyst has a list of, of Google dorks in their back pocket. So, you know, uh, OSINT 101, break out Google and see what's indexed there. You know, uh, and Google is a multi-billion dollar corporation for a reason. They are very, very good at it. Um, yeah. But fundamentally, at some point, their, their, their coverage will stop at some point. So, you know, when you move from online surface web content, which a lot of the, the, the social media uh, side of the house um, obviously falls into, but then move into the deep web. So so those areas of the internet that are unindexed by the loops, likes of Google or, or other uh, commercial search engines, then how do you access on that kind of content? Uh, and there's, there's fundamentally it comes to, um, in some instances, going to the native platforms, if you're not using sort of automation services. A lot of people in their OSINT library these days, a lot of OSINT practitioners are flexing their Python skills to go and, you know, understand, uh, you know, places like Telegram, for example. I know sort of the folks at Jane's have, have had tremendous success using Telegram, as have many yep. corporate security companies or corporate security teams utilizing Telegram, especially for, for Ukraine-Russia conflict, some of the emerging content coming out there. So how do you how do you understand what's going on in places like Telegram? How do you potentially uh, automate some of that process? And, and, and how do you take uh, insights away from that? And again, if you're not utilizing a commercial application, uh, and if you have the, the wherewithal to go and do it, things like Python, and there's a number of online sources, Python libraries, et cetera, potentially go and, to go and uh, apply some of those uh, techniques to those sources, and or indeed to, to just surface up uh, some of those are especially in Telegram. There's a, there's a good number of Telegram search engines out there that are, that are freely available. But so I think that there's a full spectrum of tools, and they range from the commercially available through to the likes of Google, which, depending on 
how much time and effort you want to put into it and right. what sort of level of coverage you want to achieve from it. Uh, realistically, the world is your oyster. You need to point your collection tools in, in the right locations. Yeah, and I'm just curious, how many, what percentage of commercial organizations actually have an open source information specialist within their ranks? Is this something that's a growing trend within commercial environments or is it really still at very much a nascent nascent stage of development for commercial organizations? I think that's a great question, Harry. So, I, I, and I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it, but I, I think anecdotally, if we go back to, um, if we take that sort of same two-year time time frame, yeah. if we go back two years, I would say that, especially in the, the sort of physical security space, sure. the OSINT specialists, I would say it's definitely an emerging emerging tradecraft within a corporate security, fiscal right. security team. Fast forward, you know, two years, uh, I would say there aren't many physical security teams that don't have a OSINT capability in-house, especially right. when you look at things like enterprise and global footprint customers. Um, right. Once you start to, to, to come down from there, then it depends whether or not they have that skill set in-house. Something that is interesting, and especially we've seen this in, in places like the financial institutions, when they are hiring OSINT analysts, things like Python skills or SQL uh, knowledge and skills start to come as part of that job description. So I think where we're seeing OSINT being operationalized, that's realistically where those skill sets are being, the demand of skill sets, the quality of skill sets is, is being increased across the, the across the board. Sure. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's very much parallels what we're seeing in the government space as well. Yes. That, you know, we're looking now as a specialist who, who understands both analysis and analytics as well. And the two are very different, of course. But I think the other thing is worth iterating as well is that, you know, it, it's no longer good enough to say this is your what our terms of secondary duty. Right. You, you do this as well. You're now an open source information or open source intelligence analysis, Alice, because it is a specialist thing to do. I mean, you talked about initially about the, you know, the, the echo chamber and, you know, disinformation, misinformation. There is specific tradecraft that is still being developed and, and worked on that you know you've got to be pretty pretty good about that this to get the open source intelligence right and that includes both for the commercial sector and and of course government yeah let me come to the uh, dis and misinformation in just a second Neil. i'm going to ask you to talk about that in just a second before i do though another thing that we've seen in this public space is the variable acceptance of insights from open source information at the higher levels and I'm not going to be ageist about it because I'm of a certain age, but I would say that those of us that didn't grow up uh, with the data under our fingernails and under our thumbprint as we were tapping away on our telephones uh, might find it more difficult to believe the validity of the open source environment. Do you find the same in the commercial environment that the more senior, the less likely they're going to accept it? Or is that uh, an unfair, an unfair uh, statement? I would actually say no, uh, and there's there's a, there's a reason for that. I think in the public sector, I, I think you know, having having listened to the, the your, your podcast over the, the months and years, you know, people have spoken to this uh, a lot. There is a mistrust, I suppose, in, in many instances uh, of social media uh, intelligence and open source intelligence because there are so many other sources, closed sources to draw from. And therefore, the open source world and, uh, and the social media world is sort of the ugly stepchild of, of the intelligence uh, of the ints. And I think in the commercial sector, whilst it is quite often the case, it is not always the case that somebody that heads up a physical security group, for example, comes from a government background. And therefore, they often come into it from a potentially different lens. And I think 
that would be true top to bottom of that organization while you do have some former government employees making or building out that that security team that security infrastructure there is a mix of people who may have geopolitical science backgrounds or, or degrees uh, and have come into the security team from slightly different backgrounds so, so it just opens up and, and sort of breaks down i think some of those prior conceptions about what open source media might be able to deliver to you yeah, I think you're probably right. I think the um, exposure, maybe indoctrination of the power of closed sources that yeah. the exquisite capabilities the governments have may have persuaded them they don't need open source for such a long time that actually now it's more difficult for them to overcome that cultural position. And Sean, you and I have certainly spoken a great deal about that. Uh, conscious of time, I want to move on to the, the last couple of things. And Sean, I'll come to you in just a second about uh, to what stage the human in the loop still remains a relevant part of it, because I know it's a topic you and I have spoken of many times. But to get to that, what I'd like to discuss then is this disinformation, misinformation, the, the big problem with the open source, public available information environment is how much gets poured in there for deliberate deception or just accidental uh, deception. So how do we guard against that in your commercial environment, Neil? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if we're going to if we, if we come back to brass tacks, realistically, it comes to, back to sort of, you know, analyst 101, good analyst acumen, uh, acumen. So if you see something that is from a single source, you know, how do you triangulate that particular new intelligence you might be getting? How can you reference that back to a known source? How can you potentially find uh, two other sources that corroborate that information? So if that's sort of from the human analyst side, that's just, as I say, sort of a good good analyst acumen. I think from the commercial sector, uh, as technology providers, you know, we can reference uh, potential content against known disinformation and misinformation campaigns, but fundamentally, that comes back to having a known source of truth. So it's about source integrity and making sure that the, that the, the, the sources are constantly being updated and checked and validated as, as we move forward. Yeah, and Sean, um, our favorite, given uh, men of certain age, we always believe that the human has to be involved in the loop, but actually I genuinely believe that's still true. I don't think machines have got to the stage yet where they do things that humans are uniquely capable of doing anywhere near as well as humans do. But uh, your view of the human in the loop debate I think as soon as you get to anything where you have to make decisions, it has to be human, particularly in the commercial, well, in all sectors. But, you know, when when it will matter about which direction you take or what what risk to take, you've got to have the human in the loop. But I'll go back to what Neil's just said, actually, a lot of it, whenever you when you put the human in the loop will depend on the efficacy, trust and quality of the information that you've got. So if you've got machine learning or artificial intelligence algorithms that you know stand the test over time, then you can rely on them more and, and, and in, include the human in the loop at a later stage of the process. But that requires a lot of trust. So it really is a learn by doing. And because I don't think we're as sophisticated yet with AI as we think we are. You rely on that at your peril to say, yeah, no, the, the computer says this. Therefore, that's what we're going to do. So you're going to have to QC it at the very least. But, you know, there is still a lot that the human brain can do by joining dots together that I still don't think that uh, algorithms can do. So, you know, of course, it's important to still have the human loop. The art is when that happens. Yeah. Neil, you any, any comeback on that? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think I, I echo Sean's uh, sentiment. I, I think 
AI today and, and sort of subsets of that, machine learning, et cetera, are an important piece of the puzzle because it reduces the decision-making time for the analyst. But fundamentally, a machine doesn't know your business like an analyst does. If you want context around, you know, how does it impact your operation specifically? And I think to Sean's point, to, to you know, quality control that, fundamentally, it needs a human eye over it. Yeah, AI just isn't there yet. Whether it will be in 10, 20 years will be interesting to see, but but it's not there today. No, not yet. All right, because time is going to now evaporate on us. I'm going to ask you both in a second to give me your one big takeaway for the audience. Um, uh, I'm going to offer you mine up front, which often therefore means, Sean, I've stolen the one you were going to give. So apologies for that in, in advance if that happens. I think, what I've, what, I think what I've taken from this conversation, Neil, and thank you very much again for helping us look into the commercial perspectives of things that we haven't looked at enough, in the time we've been doing this podcast. The one takeaway is the similarity of what you've described to what we've been discussing in the public domain, public sector domain, I mean. The, the number of times you said things that sounded almost exactly the same about how we've come to understand the power of open source information and the intelligence we can derive from it, the tools that have emerged that allow us to do that, the ability to understand now traditional and non-traditional threats, as well as deal with disinformation and misinformation, for example, with good old fashioned tradecraft, as you described it, but equally automating certain parts of the process by machinery that allows the analyst to spend more time doing the value added things the human can do better than the machine still. That all sounds very familiar. The one thing that didn't sound quite so familiar though, which is why I want to underline it, you said that the senior elements of the commercial world were more ready to accept. And I think there is a very interesting um, point to be made in there about the fact that might be because of the way they've been raised, as it were, in the commercial world, where the only available source was um, predominantly from open sources. Um, I remember, Sean, for example, we spoke with the ambassador from the Foreign Office diplomatic world, and he said, it's funny you should talk about open source as though it's something special. That's all we have in the diplomatic yeah. world is yeah. the open source environment. So it is interesting. I think that exposure over a period of time has changed people's perspectives. The culture has, has been different, whereas in the military, government environment perhaps because you've got the exquisite, the closed sources, you have perhaps been indoctrinated to believe that's the only source worth remembering, worth using. So my takeaway is the similarity, except in that one point there about perhaps the culture and the uh, the approach to open source. So Neil, your one takeaway for the audience? Yeah, I think for, for the audience, it, realistically, it's don't discount sources. You know, people see, especially some of the uh, some of the, the, the mainstream, the, the newer mainstream sources as being full of things like um, dancing videos, et cetera, or, or if we come back to Telegram, the purview of, of terrorists. You know, there is such a wealth of information to be deemed from some of the harder to reach sources and some of the more easily available sources. And realistically, it's it's being aware and arming yourself with the ability to find the, those nuggets of information from those uh, particular sources and then use them to the best of your ability. So there, there is an opportunity to uh, detect those threats, to, to understand those risks. Um, but you've got to get them first and you've got to get them efficiently and you've got to get them effectively. Uh, and realistically, that's the key of it. Don't discount sources. They're there to be used. They're there to be harnessed. you just got to use it well. I'm going to I'm going to post the bookmark for you and I again, Sean, for the future. We talked about it twice before. Neil just reminded me again, the ethics of using these platforms and how we actually then derive intelligence is one of those things that uh, we really must tackle one of these days on one of these podcasts. Neil, thank you for that. Sean, you got the uh, the final vote this time. 
Yeah, and I would sort of nuance something's been said already, um, maybe a little bit contradictory. I think we've a long way to go yet before the commercial sector really understands the power and the value of open source intelligence. You know, I talk to senior people and some of them still see it as an overhead. Oh, yeah, it's nice to do, but how much, you know, to, to set up the processes to to actually get people in to do it, to professionalise it. You know, I think it's not I think it's becoming not just a nice to do, it's becoming essential to do. You know, there's so much information available out there that can help companies make sensible decisions that will add to their bottom line, you know, conversely, stop them going out of existence. And I think there's still some way to go before some companies, at least many companies go, where's my open source intelligence? Where's my risk matrix? Where's my threats coming from? So, so there's a bit to work on there, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I think actually the amount of power available to us for exploitation for the open source publicly available and commercially available environment it would almost be i think it could justifiably be described as negligent to not engage with it and to really extract the value that it's offering so neil i'm going to finish the conversation here there were about 54 topics probably i could have dug into a great deal more but i haven't got time for that but let me say thank you again for joining us on this conversation it has been Pleasure really really good to dive into the commercial world we'll, we'll do it again so the only thing i threaten you with is we may want to revisit some of those topics and if you're willing we'd like to have you back and uh, talk again about some of these things but perhaps a bit more depth thank you again neil yeah absolute pleasure and uh, and, and anytime uh, it's it's been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation so thank you gentlemen good thanks neil and sean as ever my co-conspirator thanks for your time welcome Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, chains.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.